This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. We've been highlighting uh, innovation in neurosurgery from the beginning of this podcast, and neurosurgeons have been innovators and are always interested in new innovations that can help our patients. So today we're joined by Shiv Shukla. Shiv is an expert in pain, and he was on a track to be a doctor, but now he's gone to do something much more interesting. So Shiv, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Shiv, do you want to introduce yourself to our listenership so they can get an idea of your background, where you're from, where you went to school and all that? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I was actually born in the Fiji Islands. My parents moved to California when I was really young, um, two years old. I grew up in Northern California and, you know, in Silicon Valley. So was definitely like incubated in the startup environment. Um, went to undergrad at UC Davis, studied uh, biomedical engineering and uh, neurobiology, physiology and behavior. It's a mouthful. We called it NPB um, and uh, finally got into med school at UCSD in the MD PhD program. And I uh, was really, really curious to kind of dive deeper into pain and focus on coming up with a solution to one of the indications that, um, you know, the, the patients currently didn't have a solution to. It was chronic. There weren't any solutions. No one was really, you know, focused on those patients just because it was so difficult. And um, very early on uh, doing clinical research, um, I, I met a gentleman uh, who was 22 years old. He had a shrapnel injury in his calf that, uh, from an IED blast that led to chronic neuropathic pain. And for two years, he had excruciating levels of pain. He would describe it as um, a hot burning knife piercing him at all times. Um, and two weeks after I met him, um, he ended up, to make his pain stop, he ended up taking a shotgun and he blew his leg off. Now, I had met this gentleman like ahead of time. I knew he was like, you know, fairly psychologically sound. Never thought he would do something like this. But I also realized when I walked into the ICU that I didn't understand how much pain he had until I asked myself what it would take for me to do something so drastic. And um, that, that's kind of what, when the, you know, the, the bug bit me on neuropathic pain, I feel like I went down a rabbit hole because I walking out of the ICU, realizing how much pain he was actually in, um, I, I basically became dedicated to helping patients like himself, you know, get out of that situation because I realized that's not something anyone wants to live. It doesn't feel fair and it wasn't right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's a very compelling story and pain is a great motivator. And certainly uh, I see people every week who tell me that they don't want to live the way they are anymore and that they would even kill themselves, mm -hmm. which in most settings you think that person should be, you know, Baker acted. But until you've experienced neurologic pain, it's hard to really appreciate what people go through. And, and I would just point to our listenership to the his historical elements of neurosurgery that a, a major, major component of our history uh, is, is rooted in pain and the treatment of pain uh, going back uh, almost 100 years to, to neurologic, uh, neurological surgeons treating pain surgically. And of course, mm -hmm. we've had the pain section um, leadership on talking about what's new in pain. Um, but, but Shiv, tell me how you took an angle on this because, I mean, we're surgeons, right? But you thought about things in a different way of how to modify neural transmission. And, and, and it led to a very interesting enterprise that you've been involved in lately, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, step one after walking out of the ICU was 
uh, I did a deep dive on, you know, okay, what, what, what is the knowledge, knowledge base that currently exists and, um, started noticing interesting patterns and, in, uh, in, in the academic research where sort of everything, um, even in the, this is early 2010, every, you know, everything in the, in the two thousands was always pointing back to the papers that were done in the sixties and seventies. And it, it started feeling like there wasn't any new science that was done around, you know, like I'm sure you understand gate channel theory, um, and, and cable theory, um, how nerve functions. And it was really interesting because, you know, being at that time, those papers were 50 years old, but they were looked at as prized mechanisms, air quotes, right? Um, and, uh, one of the things that I learned was that this, there's a nerve, um, called a beta in the sensory nerve pathway, um, which essentially needs to be active for a pain signal to be inhibited. That, that's based essentially gay channel theory. Um, and, and it's something that's measurable. So, um, I'm, I'm personally not a big fan of labels, so I never really became attached to any mechanism per se, but I wanted to better understand like, okay, what if we took, you know, EMG machines that, you know, exist today that are super powerful compared to anything that existed even 20 years ago and took another stab at this, is there something we would learn? And, you know, what I was learning was that the pain fiber, the nociceptive fibers um, on these patients were active, um, but sometimes they would wake up with, you know, less amounts of pain. And so the question was why? And, you know, asking that question, having them come in like right, right in the morning when they have lower levels of pain, um, I started noticing that they had some levels of activity and A beta fibers doing nerve conduction testing um, on veterans with chronic nerve pain. There's like five patients I was working with. And by the end of the day, that nerve wouldn't be, you know, a, you know, that nerve's waveform wouldn't be available or like accessible or like I couldn't find it. You know, I thought I had learned how to do nerve conduction testing in three weeks from a neurologist in, at UCSD. And then I was, you know, doing work in a, in a trailer park in a, or in a, in a um, basically a, a trailer outside of the VA after hours. Um, so I thought maybe I wasn't looking for the signal correctly. But what was interesting over time, we got a um, neurologist to come in and basically, you know, do the same experiment. We couldn't find the signal. So we were like, what if the A beta nerve isn't dormant and receded, which is what conventional wisdom was kind of alluding to? Um, because once this nerve gets damaged um, and the activity is not restored, then the pain um, signal continues uh, forever. And what if we could reactivate the nerve? And so initially I got a lot of pushback asking that question, asking if we could test it. And again, it was always like, you know, pointed back to this prize mechanism. Um, and so uh, I think I bothered people enough where they finally stopped saying no. Um, and, and we started doing testing on rats. Um, we basically dissected out the A beta nerve on rats under a microscope. And our goal was to see if we can activate it. We tried every single, you know, electrical stimulation modality we can get our hands on fancy, you know, TENS units, micro neurography equipment. Like we had this $50,000 signal generator from General Atomic that could generate any signal. Um, and the challenge was that we couldn't get this A beta nerve to consistently activate. We would get one or two um, and we have a needle in it under a microscope. So we know we are on it and like, it's like the signal is right, right when you put the rat down and we're, you know, have dissected the nerve, like the conditions are optimal, but we couldn't get this nerve to consistently activate. And so eventually um, I brought in a physicist to just get his feedback. He was an advisor at General Atomics. And he, he, he basically said like electricity isn't gonna really work because current travels through the path of least resistance. 
And because we're looking to do a targeted and dynamic activity, current in a conductor where it's going to travel through the path of least resistance isn't going to be, you know, it's not going to be possible to direct the current in that specific of a way. And he asked if I had thought about magnetic fields because magnetic fields pass through soft tissue unhindered, which is why MRIs work. Um, and so when we like ran out of all the options on the electrical stimulation side, um, I started looking at the options on the magnetic field side. Um, I got pointed to this TMS device, transcranial magnetic stimulation device that was 10 years old. It's like $120,000 piece of equipment that was sitting dusty in one of the corners and uh, wheeled that over to the animal research area. And we started you know, trying to activate this nerve again. Um, and again, we failed. So what we learned was that with a TMS device, the current is very diffuse. Um, from the output of the, the device is very dis, um, diffuse. And so we couldn't activate this you know, specific nerve. We needed something that um, was way more focused. And so that, <laughs> that's when I ended up spending about three years building the, the, the device in my apartment. Um, and so we, we had something that we could test three months in um, that we tested on a patient. And the goal was to see if we can activate this nerve, right? And this A-beta nerve consistently. And so we, we first tested that in rats and we're able to do it. We're like, okay, let's see if it translates in humans and applied it to Sergeant Stephen Carmen um, at the VA. And it was really interesting because we have like four or five physicians in the room and we're, you know, setting this up, making sure we're not causing any more pain. And, and finally, like we set it up, we start the, the stimulations and boom, on the EMG, we see his A-beta nerve. And like, now we're like super excited, taking pictures on our phone. We look over at him and he has tears in his eyes because he's feeling pain relief. And I hadn't put two and two together um, that, you know, a couple of test pulses of anything would mean, would, you know, mean anything of value to the patient. But the fact that it was like, so quick um, was really interesting. It kind of turned on a light bulb and I was looking for any possible clue, right? So I was like, okay, I'm gonna double click on this. And basically after testing this idea in five patients, um, I felt like I had seen you know, a, a truth that I couldn't unsee, kind of like when you see how a magic trick works, you can't, you don't get too much wonder from it, you know, seeing it again, um, that in activating this nerve, the patients were experiencing pain relief. I had no clue why, so went through, we did a mechanistic study to better understand what was happening. And what we learned was that um, by applying axon therapy, we're able to increase conduction velocity in the damaged A-beta nerve fibers um, and decrease conduction velocity in the pain fibers. And so that was a really interesting insight because now we had something, you know, we could point our finger towards and kind of pinpoint. Um, and we went on to do a 20 patient randomized controlled study um, and in that study, what we demonstrated with that with the active sham um, that after three treatments of axon therapy in the first week, we were able to provide patients up to four weeks of durable relief of at least 30, I think at the time, 31% compared to sham. And so that's when I left med school finally, because we had statistically significant durability and neuromodulation. Um, and at that time, that wasn't a thing. Neuromodulation durability was like minutes to se seconds to minutes after you know, the device was turned off. And so that was, that seemed like the biggest breakthrough ever. Um, and so that's how we got started. Well, Shiv, that's such a compelling story, particularly how this work was all born out of and the early steps completed with veterans helping them deal with their chronic pain. So my hat's off to you and your whole team, um, not only for that, that arduous path that you just described for us 
to where you are today, but also, again, the, the fact that you did this helping our, our nation's veterans deal with the pain. Um, but, you know, when I hear people talk about working in the space of invention or innovation in this creative space, I always wonder what it is about that person that allows them to look at a chronic and common problem, as you pointed out, this kind of pain that patients have been dealing with for generations, that physicians have been trying to treat for generations. What is it about you, about your team, that makes you able to come in and see the same problem, the same people dealing with that problem that everyone else is, but unlock or identify or create or discover a new perspective to take on it and a new angle to attack that problem from. You know, I, I will point our listeners, as Dr. Wang said, we we love talking about innovation, invention, and neurosurgery. I'll point our listeners back to episode 10 in the early days of our show when we had Dr. John Adler on talking about his many innovations within our field. And, you know, it, it's at the heart of our show here talking about within the space of neurosurgery, how people can innovate, how people can create new solutions to problems. So perhaps speaking from your own experience on that story you told us, or, you know, I'm sure a number of creative people and the teams that you work with there in California, what do you think sets the creative mind apart and allows you to find that new solution? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I know the exact answer. I can um, share what, you know, is coming up that I think we did differently. Um, well, first of all, I think um, in, in 2008, an undergrad, um, uh, we had to like sign up for internships and I really wanted to do um, EKG work, but we had to choose three. And my third choice um, was like a rehab center. And that was like not where I wanted to go. And that's the one I got. And I remember thinking like the night before, like crap, like I got screwed up into this like internship I didn't want to do. But when I went there, um, I thought I was going to see, you know, like kind of like drug addicts that were first to go to rehab. Instead, what I saw was like really responsible adults, you know, moms, dads, aunts, uncles, like grandparents, like that went through a surgical procedure and, and got addicted and just like wanted out. Um, and one of the patients had knee pain and I was doing anatomy at the time. And the, the knee and anatomy is like, it's so simple that we don't even spend like, you know, a, a full cycle on it. Um, and this patient had knee pain and that was the year the iPhone came out. And I remember like looking at the iPhone and like looking at this patient and wondering like, how is it that we figured out an iPhone and not knee pain, which, you know, if you take a cross section of knee, there's a finite number of variables. And like, it's like, it, it was just stunning that, you know, that dichotomy existed and that we hadn't. But at UCSD, I'm going to say one thing about the veterans that I thought was really special. I think it takes a lot of courage to have be refractory to all available therapies, have, you know, unsustainable levels of chronic pain um, and, and, and allow somebody who has no, you know, who's <laughs> brand new to, to the clinical research space, do research on you. Um, when I went to civilians and asked them if they wanted to be enrolled in our research studies, I, I got a no thank you. Um, with like, are, are you crazy type of expression of like, come back when you have a solution. And with the veterans, it was like, you know, how much worse can this pain get? It might help someone like myself go for it. Like, you know, <laughs> and that was, a, that was shocking to hear. Like they've sacrificed their life once. They've ended up in this, you know, chronic condition where they're being told nothing could be done. And then they have the courage to come in again and, you know, take the ultimate sacrifice potentially over their pain, like even getting worse. Um, but over and over again, it was like a no brainer. And I think that was a big, big deal in like allowing us to like feel safe enough to do research. Um, 
And then finally, um, I, one thing that I, I, I started noticing that was like pretty frustrating was um, when I asked the MDs I was working with, I would ask them an annoying amount of questions, like to the point where I was getting annoyed, like stop asking why, you know, like, just like take the answer, go think about it, come back with a better question tomorrow. But they never stopped answering my questions. They gave me every answer um, I possibly had. So I think curiosity has, you know, a big component there. And that support, and I think in SoCal UCSD, um, I never got a no. Um, even if I was like being frustrating, like somebody pointed me to a, a solution or where I can go look for an answer. Um, and then there, there were a lot of times that there was frustration because uh, when I met this veteran and, and saw what happened, I started wondering like, you know, what therapy can we give to him tomorrow to like give him any sense of relief? Because as you know, like shooting a leg off doesn't make your pain go away if you have neuropathic pain. Yeah, so um, Shiv, I mean, I, I love how you give the shout out for the veterans because it's, so, it's such an important uh, asset treasure, if you will, in the healthcare system to have a VA system. And yeah. uh, most training programs have a VA system and it's a wonderful place to train, but it's also wonderful to get to know these heroes and veterans who've sacrificed so much for us. So along those lines, I want you to delve in, into the, the science as well, how you discovered this. So, you know, remember, not all of our audience is is fully indoctrinated. So maybe walk through your exact target and how you came about to 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 uh, use that as your hypothesis for for stopping pain in these folks with neuropathic pain. Like you talk about the different kinds of fibers. Go go through that a little bit so our listeners can understand the science. Yeah, basically, in our nervous system, we have our central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system. The peripheral nervous system, we have nerves that are kind of going out from the spinal cord into our periphery that control movement. Those are motor and then sensory nerves go from our periphery back into the central nervous system to provide feedback. Kind of an oversimplification there, but high level. Um, on the sensory side, there's you know the tactile sensors, the mechanism receptors, um, and then there's the pain and temperature proprioception sensors of you know telling us you know how our body's doing at the periphery. Um, on the on the pain side, um, there there's two fibers that are um, you know important in carrying the signal for pain: a delta which is, uh, you know, cold pain and discrete pain, like sharp pain, and then C fibers, which is heat pain and, and diffuse pain, um, deeper pain. So, you know, if you take your thumb and you hit, you hit it with a hammer, the first kind of sharp, sharp shooting pain that you get in, in, in your thumb that tells you you did something wrong is your, you know, a delta signal. And then you kind of feel like your whole pulse is like, with each pulse, you feel pain kind of creeping up your thumb and that's, that's the C fiber. Now, in order to any, anywhere you don't feel pain today, you have a, a mechanoreceptor um, that's linked to a nerve called A beta that's active um, all over your body. And when you when A beta is active, you, it, it suppresses the signal and the pain fibers. And so um, you, you get a sense of that when you sit on your leg for too long and you start getting pins and needle, needles. Um, you basically, you know, stop activity in, in the A beta fiber essentially, and like. Now, now there's essentially some level of, you know, pain and, and pain is a useful signal um, in most scenarios. But uh, what we learned was that for these patients, when there's trauma um, and a beta's activity um, is diminished, spontaneous activity in the pain fiber starts passing through into the central nervous system. And that makes sense, right? Like you've injured yourself, you need to have the signal for pain. And in the he healthy scenario, when the tissue heals, a beta's, a beta uh, reconnects and the signal comes back. And the pain signal is modulated again. It goes away because now, you know, everything's okay. For these veterans um, that we were seeing at the time, their trauma was so severe 
And, you know, for whatever reason, whether there's scar, scar tissue in the way or like that other part of that, you know, body is not no, no longer there, a beta couldn't reconnect. And because of that, um, the pain signal, even if the tissue is healthy, everything's kind of repaired back to as good as it can be, the pain signal doesn't go away. And that, that, that's glitchy, right? I call that a glitch in our hardware. Like um, nature hasn't caught up yet. <laughs> um, and so I couldn't help but wonder like, what if we could reactivate this nerve, right? It seems like the most fundamental way to solve this problem, but there's a lot of pushback from conventional wisdom of like that nerve is now dormant and receded. And it wouldn't even show up on the EMG, at least in the older EMG. So I think I understood why they got to that conclusion. But I think um, to your point, JP, again, like just, you know, testing that conventional wisdom again is, is like asking the question of like, you know, what if that's wrong? Like, what if there's 5% chance that that's long, wrong? Let's test it again, right? Um, and, and testing the fundamental premise and which we got to do in the animal research labs with the rats. Um, what we did was we started applying, you know, what are all the ways we can activate this nerve? And the first, you know, 20 were electrical stimulation modalities, like fancy TANS units to like explanted, I would wait outside of surgeons, uh, uh, you know, after they were doing surgery to get an explanted medical device um, that they would like kind of sneak to me so I can go test it and then bring it back. Um, but when we tried all of those options and nothing worked, then we had to kind of figure out, okay, what else that we don't have access to today? Like, what are the unknown unknowns? Like, what else could work? I was listening to um, Einstein's biography by Walter Isaac Isaacson at the time. And I, I was wondering one day, super frustrated, like, Einstein wouldn't have this problem. And I was like, oh, I need to talk to a physicist. So I brought my physicist advisor in who was like, you know, have you thought of magnetic fields? And so I think it was, uh, I don't think we invented something brand new, like the modality exists, right? Um, but it was the application and just like, you know, working out a problem with the, you know, with the mindset of delivering a solution like tomorrow, even though it took 11 years, which is how long I've been working at this. Um, because when I asked the MDs, what I, the answer I got was like cognitive behavioral therapy or physical therapy was the solution for this patient, right? Um, and, and if you have a hot burning knife going through, you're like, that's not what you want to do. Um, and then when I went to the PhDs, you know, they're like, oh, we've identified these receptors, trip one, trip two, et cetera. And that there's like, you know, 20 more to go and it's going to take 40 more years. So like, we don't have a solution tomorrow from there either. And that was really frustrating. So like not relenting on this idea of like delivering rapidly, um, which is something I think it might be a skill learned from Silicon Valley, but, um, you know, continuously iterating until a solution is found. Did I answer that Actually, question? Like, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Shiv, you know, I, I think... One of the main reasons we wanted to have you on the show today was not just to talk about creativity and innovation in this space, but to let our listeners know about this novel treatment that you've helped to develop and to bring to patients who need it. So in that light, as we wrap up our conversation today, why don't you let our listeners know a bit about your company today, now that we've talked about the story about how you got where you are now. Um, why don't you tell our listeners the name of your company, what things you're doing right now, and, and where you see the company going in the, in the days and years to come. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Neuralace Medical, our therapy is called Axon Therapy. We're based out of San Diego. Uh, we just received FDA clearance June 11th, and we're starting to go to market. We're launching into pain clinics, so we're a B2B to C. Uh, we partner with pain clinics to uh, reach out to uh, patients directly to bring them into the clinics. Um, right now, our therapy is manually operated, so we need a technician to deliver the therapy. 
However, the treatment is basically 16 treatments in a year. It's three in the first week, weekly for the first month. Month two is one treatment every two weeks, then month three and on is a monthly maintenance treatment. Um, for a technician, that, that gets like, you know, difficult to do over and over again. Um, so what I what we did was we, we basically uh, put together a robotic solution that's able to deliver the, the therapy over and over again very effectively with 100% repeatability. And so the second iteration of our product automates the therapy, which brings our cost down significantly, which is really exciting because we can access more patients then. Um, and then the final part of our, our device is uh, it's essentially a wireless microneurography sensor, um, which which is a fancy way of saying like it's closed loop feedback. It's it's a wireless way of reading the signal from the nerves um, that we're activating. So our goal is to be the most accountable pain management company. Um, I'm not a fan of the emoji pain scale. <laughs> and so um, our, our question was like, how do we measure objectively what effect we're creating? Um, step one was to write to the nerve, which is what axon therapy does. It's, it's activating the nerve that needs to be active. And, and another step was to you know, read activity from the nerve. Um, the pain fibers that you know are currently causing the problem and so what we do is we have a, a series of um, sensors that are able to basically use trilateration um, to figure out where the signal that we're generating is coming from in the body um, within centimeters um, and then from there we lock in on that signal and then we can see pre and post uh, the modulator modulatory fiber activity and the pain fiber activity so as we apply axon therapy um, we see that signal in the pain fiber decrease and the signal in the modulatory fiber increase, which is really interesting because we have an objective way of now, you know, seeing what's happening. It's basically like, you know, what we did with nerve conduction testing, um, just taken to a more applicable format. Um, and now, you know, the patient knows what's going on. The, the physician will know what happened and also the pair knows, right? In order to scale this technology, yes, we have our robotic solution that makes it really easy. But second, we need we need widespread cut, uh, coverage, and it was interesting with the FDA. We have uh, we've been given a brand new product category code, which is really helpful on our path to reimbursement, demonstrating that we're something brand new. Um, but once we, uh, it'll take about two to three years to you know complete our clinical work, um, and then you know maybe deliver some objective evidence evidence that gets payers excited to you know cover something because what is neuromodulation today and pain therapies? There's it's all subjective, right? And so it's, it's hard to, you know, give them a good argument of what they're paying for. And I think we'll be able to demonstrate really good ROI um, by, by being able to read and write on this nerve and, um, you know, bring some objectivity into this really difficult condition. Outstanding. Well, Shiv, we want to respect your time and thank you for coming on the show today to share this inspiring story with us and our listeners. And we're both just so excited to see where this company is going to go in the days and years ahead to see uh, how far you've come already and where you're going to take it next. So thank you for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Awesome, JP. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Wang. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.